at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, we made it to the second weekend of TBT week. We did. Is that the is that the headline? I don't I don't even know. I was going to go with Happy Bill Connolly Day, but I think that might be too uh, too meta. I don't know. I feel like a lot of people are actually pretty excited about that. Got got a lot of love on uh, on Facebook, even from a crowd that's usually not very uh, thrilled with advanced statistics and things like that. So yeah, who knows? I feel like every year it gets a pretty warm reception, even like when the year like overly positive. But I also think he's very fair, like, every year, good or bad, so it's, it's hard to, like... I, I, although he does get, like, bad feedback from, like, Iowa fans, he says, and stuff, so uh, maybe this, this is one of the only things we're, like, weirdly rational about. I could see that. I think, yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, if you're, if you're us and you're not necessarily... If you don't go in with, like, these, like, ridiculous expectations, I feel like we weren't as realistic, and maybe maybe you and I were, but, like... Maybe everybody in general wasn't as realistic about it. Like, back in... I feel like this is probably the case, without even looking. Back in, like, 2013, maybe 2014. I feel like in 2014, we were probably assholes about it. I can't remember that that, that far. (laughs) I I just remember us, like... We're being honest. I just remember us, like, casually mentioning, like, oh, yeah, we're definitely a bowl team, and let's see how much of a bowl team we can be. And, like, that obviously didn't happen. No, I mean, it's also, like, I don't know, it's tough, to, I, it's not tough for a lot of people, because, like, generally, people aren't good at arguments all the time on the internet, um, but it's all very stat-based, so, like, if you want to argue against what the statistics say, like, that's your prerogative, but you're being, like, weird. Also fair. Um, alright. So, moving on from a preview that might have been several years ago, um, to some of today's headlines for, uh... Syracuse sports, most of them football-related. Um, Dan, preseason uh, depth chart came out, and while there weren't a ton of changes uh, relative to the post-spring depth chart, uh, we did see a few things that were different. Um, one of the big glaring things, to me at least, uh, was the fact that we're really in on Kenneth Ruff being a nose tackle, and he's now at 284. I'm pretty sure he came to school around, like, what, 239 maybe? Somewhere around there. Yeah, I mean, he was, like, a big-ish linebacker, but he wasn't, like... I mean, if you if you tell me that you're going to convert a linebacker to nose tackle, like, that's a pretty jarring move, and 284 is still, like, fairly, you know, on the lighter side for a nose, but considering we play a four-man I'm like, he can play at that. Um, he's not that far behind McKinley Williams, who is behind on the depth chart, who's at 292, so... And then on the other side, you have the two bigger guys. Uh, so... I mean, it's impressive. I, it all depends on like how he holds the weight, and, and obviously, like what his frame looks like. But it's—I uh, don't think they would have done this if they thought they were, you know, putting a player in a position where he's not going to be successful. Yeah, I buy that. I think I feel like Babers has mentioned Ruff a lot since he came aboard. I think he's pretty high on him. I think he's just trying to figure out the best way to do right by his obviously pretty impressive skill set, and also do right by like the team. And I feel like. Maybe Ruff, maybe Ruff got like a little bit over where he needed to be at some point in the offseason, and then looking at the defensive ends that they have at their disposal, perhaps Babers figured that shifting him inside was worthwhile. I mean, to be honest, like as much as as much as we've been negative about um, you know the defensive line, and we'll get more into that during like the actual season preview episode, like. There is enough on this too deep to make us think, if not this year, next year, that there'll actually be some progress, and maybe he saw a clearer path to nose tackle. Maybe he saw a clearer path to Ruff being on the field more at nose tackle than he necessarily saw um, on the ends, where there's a lot smaller, faster guys all in about the same mold, while Ruff is a couple inches shorter and about 30 to 40 pounds heavier than the guys we're seeing on the outside. 
Yeah, I, I mean, also there's there's a little more depth at defensive end than there is at defensive tackle, but like neither position stacked. But uh, the move from linebacker definitely makes sense, just because that's like the one defensive spot where Syracuse has a lot of playmakers, and it would have been hard to. It's hard for anyone to break through that group. I mean, the two deep is pretty pretty well uh, situated. Um, but overall, I mean, I'm intrigued by. It. I just don't think this is a move you make if if it's not done with very uh, deliberate intentions. Like it's not. It doesn't seem like you'd move him to nose tackle out of like sheer um, need for someone to go there because it would just. It, it, in most cases, it would be easier to move a defensive end inside. So clearly, this is what they think is the best spot for him. Um, I'm interested to see it, and also uh, with the amount of reps that our defense is going to end up getting based on the pace of play for this team most years, and and in the ACC overall aside from, like, some teams like Boston College, um, you're going to need to have a lot of guys rotating in and out at de- uh, along the defensive line, because otherwise guys are going to be dead. So um, maybe having lighter nose tackles uh, might be part of the strategy there, just to have, you know, slightly uh, more fit players there. Yeah, and I mean, last year, too, I feel like we were just dissecting parts of the depth chart, and then, like, Dino Babers dropped on us, like, around, like, late July, early August, like... Yeah, well, that's not necessarily always going to be the case. We're just going to have, like, you know, we're going to have these, like, strong side and weak side sets. There's going to be, I mean, I didn't pay enough attention to, like, the individual game by game, like, how they lined up over there. But I feel like because of the depth issues, it was really just for most of the season, you know, Williams, Slayton, and Samuels, and then, like, Clark for parts of it. And then some of the other guys, like, were able to plug in a little bit. Um, I don't necessarily think we had the personnel to run something like that. I think this year we actually do, surprisingly. Um, and so, like, at one point, you, it might seem jarring to see Slayton, you know, and Samuels not on the field at the same time, but I think the two of them are going to see the field together a lot more than people might realize just, you know, looking at the depth chart on its face. Yeah, and they're also the two veteran guys. I mean, if you look at the entire, you know, eight guys in the two deep in the defensive line, like, it's all sophomores except for those two who are both redshirt juniors. So they're the two veterans. I think they're going to be the point people. Slayton is among the more experienced players, probably the most experienced player on this defensive line. Um, Samuel is a talented guy. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they do play together a bit, um, especially in against teams like BC and uh, more run-heavy teams um, who are just in a pound up the duck because they are completely uh, unimaginative offensively. Um <laughs> saying that lightly, I guess, but for Boston College specifically. Um, that's also, like, I, I think that's one of the, the cases, and I obviously we're probably going to talk a little bit here and there about uh, Bill Connolly's preview today, but he mentioned, like, if 2017 isn't the breakout year for Syracuse, um, it's mostly schedule-based because schedule is pretty tough. Um, 2018 could be because just on this entire depth chart, I mean, how many seniors do you have playing? Like, at receiver, we're pretty senior-laden. Outside of that, it's it's juniors and sophomores everywhere. Um, I'm looking like we have three on offense, uh, number one seniors, and Paris Bennett, Zaire Franklin. So all the linebackers are seniors uh, on defense. Said, this depth chart makes me feel a hell of a lot better with that situ- about that situation than I did like even a month ago. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the, the quiet – I mean, we've talked about it, but one of the like – under under uh, appreciated things about last year is obviously there were injuries all over the place and we didn't make a bowl but like we played about you know where we thought we would for the first year in the system we got so many guys experience um, so not only is this team like in, by by twenty eighteen maybe going to be more veteran heavy it's going to be veterans who've been playing for a long time like it's not going to be a bunch of like juniors and seniors entering their first year starting like they're all going to be third or fourth year starters assuming we we hang on to everyone yeah and I mean you know is it just on linebackers alone, like, you look at a group that, you know, like a month ago, if you told me, oh, man, like, what about the linebackers next year? I would have been a little worried. But, like, visualizing it like this a little bit more, like, Guthrie's a junior, and Guthrie, like, was setting records for for tackles and tackles for loss um, down the JUCO ranks. I think everyone's been really high on Armstrong, and I know he played pretty well um, in his limited uh, time last year. I mean, I don't know what that means for Troy Henderson's future necessarily, that Armstrong's already kind of leapt into that middle linebacker, kind of heir apparent uh, conversation to Zaire, but is what it is. Um, and then Whitner moving uh, from safety to the Sam linebacker, like, we'll see how much of a fit that is, but Whitner is a great cover guy and a strong tackler, and he's some, I mean, that's weird to say about anybody at Syracuse right now, but uh, Whitner really showed us, I think, a lot um, 
last season and at least more than he had the season before like he still has a little rough around the edges and maybe the coverage um portions of that is why he moves the linebacker but again like he's somebody who started to show flashes of being improved last year and could certainly um you know excel you know being moved over there and it's not like there isn't depth behind these guys too yeah, and with Whitner, he almost like looked more like a linebacker last year. He's very, very muscle bound. Um, very like he's just a very stocky guy. So uh, he's only listed at at two hundred two, but like he plays a lot bigger than that. Um, and while you know he had some trouble against some of the top flight uh, ACC receivers uh, over the top last year as a safety, I don't think he's gonna have too much of an issue covering tight ends and, and running backs out of the backfield. No, absolutely not. And then looking at the secondary too, I mean. This is going to change a bunch um, at some point, just because I'd be surprised if you know Devin Butler came over from Notre Dame to sit behind Chris Frederick. Jordan Martin's not on here, and I feel like he would seem likely to get plugged in somewhere. But at the same time, like who are you moving? Like Frederick played really well um, in in his first kind of you know snaps last year, um, and really seems like a rising name. Um, uh, overall on the team and then you look at you know Juwan Dallas coming back from injury Scoop Bradshaw seemed to get better as the season wore on last year despite kind of moving around positions and, and didn't, again getting his, his first action um, at the collegiate level and then see like I know we're close to the program therefore like we know what these names are capable of but the fact that we're seeing like not just a blanket okay like the oldest guy and the most veteran guy is at the top of 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 this too deep and especially in the secondary you're seeing a lot of you know sophomores above juniors or redshirt juniors or juniors above redshirt juniors you're seeing players play above maybe their experience and maybe that's babers buying into you know kids that either bought in right away or kids that he recruited but uh nonetheless like seeing a lot of these younger names like elevate themselves in the step chart to me makes me feel a hell of a lot better about this secondary than um than I did at the end of last season. Yeah, I think a lot of it could be just improved recruiting. Obviously, not all these aren't a ton of Babers guys since he's only had, you know, one full class and then what he, you know, the the makeshift class, uh, his first year on campus or his first off season. Um, but uh, even maybe even towards the end of Schaefer's tenure, like you might just be getting better talent in here. And, and you see this not just at a school that's rebuilding like Syracuse, but like even at a school like Alabama. Like, they're not afraid to start a freshman over a junior if the freshman is going to be the best player. Um, I think that's a shift in college football recently. Like, guys are coming in more uh, game-ready off the bat. Uh, I don't don't know if it's seven-on-seven camps or just more of a a hyper-focus on, you know, specific sports or whatever. But, like, players just seem more ready now than they used to be. And um, schools are are not – the best schools are not afraid to – uh, ruffle feathers if it means starting, you know, the best player, even if they are a true freshman versus a guy who's been on campus. So, um, I think you just got to play the best guys, and it definitely is. It is good that you're seeing uh, some of the fresh blood coming in here and and taking these jobs. And it's also like for the one of the first times I can remember in the last couple of years, like I'm looking at this too deep uh, on both sides of the ball, and there isn't really a name that I'm like, oh, I I don't I hope he doesn't have to play. Like all these guys are at least somewhat proven or like have potential. Um, and, and most of them on defense, especially like played fairly big roles last year because of the injuries and the depth issues. So it's it just not, it's not like there's a scary, a super scary spot, obviously defensive line. There are, you know, we'd li- I'd like to have a couple more guys on that, on that group, but like, I, I feel pretty decent about most of these spots, even though, you know, it, at the end of the day, we're not, you know, a top flight, uh, top tier talent ACC team. I feel like we kind of have an idea of what all these guys can give us versus like in years past where you're like, if there's one injury at defensive end there, who knows what's going to be there. Like now I feel fairly comfortable about it. Right. Like people, people should be seeing this year that Dino Babers fix for the program. Wasn't just about inserting, you know, his guys or, or, or the best guys in his starters and then seeing what happens. It was really, you know, kind of rebuilding a lot of, I mean, to be honest, like as much as defense was a was a specialty of this previous staff, um, there was a lot of turnover on that side. Uh, there was a, there were a lot of risks taken on that side that didn't really pan out. Um, we've seen more turnover too under Babers, but he's repl- he's turned over 
He's turned over parts of the roster, but he's managed to backfill and replace maybe with better depth, not necessarily better players um, individually, just because it's kind of hard to assess that. But he's backfilled with better depth um, on the defensive side of the ball that even if we're going to struggle there um, this year, hopefully not as much as last year, um, there's still there's still more foundation for the system taking hold um, and for these guys to get to stay healthier and be a little less exhausted having you know more capable guys come in like you said this is this is not a depth chart where we're sitting here and and you know scratching our heads going like oh shit like who is this who's this guy I really don't know anything about him and how is he going to replace x y and z like it has been quite a while since like we can look at it too deep and not say that about literally anybody yeah i mean i i this is definitely one of the more fully fledged uh flushed out two deeps i can remember um also on the other side like I, i'm really interested ravian pierce shot up to number one real quick and i i know you brought up devin butler like on the on, on the defensive side and i think at the end of the day he'll probably end up starting I, I think frederick being in that spot might just be because he's been on campus longer and they wanted to uh to just give him that courtesy until like actual camp breaks but ravian pierce has clearly shown a lot and i know there aren't a ton of tight ends on the roster but uh Tight end one right out of the gate. I, I'm I'm cautiously like super optimistic about uh, what he can bring, and I I think the spring game was a start of that. But I, I'm really excited to see what kind of dimension that brings to the offense because it was such a non-factor last season. Oh yeah, I, I think Pierce is going to, and that's why you're seeing I think a three wide receiver uh, layout in these depth charts because I think Pierce is, is basically going to function as that fourth wideout. Um, you and I have talked about you know the lack of goal line options at nauseum, but. Uh, Bears repeating that Pierce is going to be that, even if Jamal Custis and Adley Anoisi aren't. Like, the wide receivers look a little weird, if only because like I don't think Anoisi is the same type of player as Ishmael. Um, I don't see Butler being the same type of player as Custis. Like, I, I really see, like in a more traditional Babers offense, you have, you know, Ishmael and Butler on the outside, and then you've got, you know, Phillips and Riley on the inside. And then occasionally, like depending on the package, that's where you insert Anoisi and uh, Custis. But now, w- w- with Pierce kind of coming in, you really do change the look of this offense. And you know, Babers hasn't used a ton of, of tight ends in his history, but uh, there was a good article by Ari a couple months ago talking about how, like, you know, the pro style spread, just this 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 sea change um, within football that Babers has been quick to kind of respond to, and that's where you know Pierce comes in. That's where Custis and Anoisi, while they aren't tight ends in name. I feel like they might actually take on some of those characteristics and, and, and make this office look very different from last year and, and much better uh, from a functional standpoint, especially in short yardage. Yeah, it's, it's a fair, I mean, I think there's a fair uh, assessment that odds are based on like the style of player they are, that Pierce, Tustis, and Anoisi are all going to be occupying kind of similar roles in the offense. And I don't know how much we'll see all three of them. I think if you have one of them on the field, I think you're, you're I mean, I think Ishmael's going to be on the field almost every snap, and probably Phillips, too. And then the rest of the guys are, are kind of situational, I think. Like, you have Avant on there, um, and then Custis or Butler, like, they're not very similar, but I, I almost think that or could be like, you know, it depends on if we want a Custis-style player or a Butler-style player right. um, as the third guy, or the, yeah, I said the third, the third receiver spot there. Yeah, which is fine. Like you said, I... I've been fascinated by Faber's ability to, to adjust and adapt, and, and, and I think when he does, um, I think sometimes the, the adjustments that happen are, are pretty pretty interesting and pretty cool to watch. Um, obviously, we didn't really see – we haven't really seen a ton of that on the offensive end in a while. I mean, even Marone, who was an offensive coach, um, the team struggled on offense for part of his time there. Even when things clicked in 2012, they didn't click the entire season. And I would say just running that offense wasn't necessarily like the stroke of genius. It was just something that made sense for the personnel. Like this is a, this is a whole other animal, and it's something that I think is going to be. I mean, especially for me, someone who rewatches uh, the offense again a couple of days later, like this is going to be something fun to watch over and over and see how little tweaks and adjustments happen, and especially compared to last year when again we were basically not employing a tight end and, and just kind of splitting four wide more often than not. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is going to be an offense, I think, that's just constantly changing and developing, and I think Babers is going to play into the strengths, where last year, you know, the strength was uh, Ambedatawa becoming the best, one of the best receivers in football, I don't know where, so he 
you know, roll with that and to, to great effect. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if this offense, like, has a very year-by-year uh, -year feel to it. And obviously they're, like, going to be um, things that persist throughout because it is, like, a, you know, it is a system. But, like, I, I think each year might have a very distinct identity based on the players that he, uh, that he has on the field. Um, and I think that's good. I think he, uh, he's a very adjustable coach from what we've seen so far, and I think we'll, we'll learn even more about that uh, as he gets more of his dies in here and, and the players become more uh, used to the system, which obviously we're, in the, we're still in like the very uh, early phases of this based on his, his year-and-a-half timeline. Agreed. I'm very excited about it. Um, still have a little bit more to talk about here before we get to halftime. Uh, one other thing I wanted to bring up, uh, Vegas odds were released today for, well, yesterday, sorry, for the ACC Championship of football. Uh, Syracuse got 200 to 1 odds. That was the same as uh, Wake Forest and Virginia over in the Coastal. A little bit easier for Virginia to navigate that potential division title and then a conference title. Uh, BC got the lowest odds at 300 to 1. Dan, does that seem weird to you that BC was kind of taken apart from the rest of them and, and, and placed in a, in a lower tier all their own or just par for the course considering that they look worse than I think anybody else in, in conference play last year? Um, I think it's that and I also, I think there might it might be a chance BC is probably a lower variance team than, than we are so like I, I've seen a lot of predictions where BC ends up finishing ahead of us this year but I think there's a better chance of, like, if you're just doing strict, like, this This isn't, like, taking into account the chance of finishing in second or third or whatever. This is just strictly the bet is first or nothing. Right. Um, so I think I would probably say BC is the least likely to win the ACC because even if BC has, like, their best possible year, I think they're a pretty low, yeah, they're a pretty low-ceiling team. If Syracuse has its best year and, like, you know, obviously an astronomical thing amount of things would have to break right for Florida State and Clemson, and Louisville and Miami and all those schools to follow under Syracuse. But, like, based on the system and the players and the team, um, I just think Syracuse is a much higher variance in both directions than BC. Um, so, and obviously it's 201 odds. It's not like Syracuse is, like, 50 to 1. So I, I think that's probably where that's coming from. There. I guess one last thing before halftime. Uh, Bill Connolly's preview, like we said earlier. Talk about it a little bit. Um, I think one of the things that uh, myself, others have all mentioned as a cool addition to this year's, um, you know, version of it is these uh, radars for the offense and defense and how they were, you know, successful and, and efficient in certain, you know, aspects of the game. I think for us, seeing uh, very high numbers for explosiveness and passing is great. Obviously, seeing lower numbers for overall efficiency and rushing were bad on the defensive end. Seeing things just not really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> in any I way said form. <laughs> I've seen like a bunch of these, and like obviously he started making this like a centerpiece of his uh, his previews this year. But like I've seen these, these similar drafts for teams over the last couple of years. I have never seen one look like our defensive draft does this year. You know what though? BC's offensive draft <laughs> looks similar to this. <laughs> I need to look that up. Uh, it kind of looks like a, a, a toddler trying to draw a butterfly. <laughs> It just didn't work for him. No, he's, he's a couple years away. Um, it's ugly. But uh, the offensive draft, I mean, I think it also, like, really lines up to what we saw on the field. Like, it, the Syracuse team that we saw last year was pretty much a Syracuse team that existed, like, in reality. Um, it, especially offensively. Like, the rushing was basically non-existent. Passing was very existent. Uh, explosiveness was huge, and that's, you know, by design. We That's some one of the things that we expected to happen, and it is coming along pretty quickly efficiency like you know hopefully that'll get better but to be in the you know top what 40 percent um top like 40 rankings first year i think is pretty solid on the passing side um so uh, i i think we uh it lines up with what we experienced um and hopefully it's uh it's a good thing for a good uh puts us in a good trajectory to heading into year two here yeah and you know another good thing i saw here and something that like others don't do because of a lack of space or a lack of care or time is the diving into, you know, what, what this offense looked like game to game in certain stretches. Like, you know, Bill was quick to point out, you know, here's what the offense looked like in the first six games. Here's what it looked like in the next two. And then those last four, you know, differentiating the fact that, you know, Dungy was out. I know I've seen some critiques of, 
not critiques necessarily of Babers, but some lazy kind of just, uh, well, Syracuse didn't really get that much better last year because they had the same record. They scored a similar number of points. And it, it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't look at, you know, the, the numbers that Bill dives into here are just, hey, there were like three separate seasons in there and like take each, you know, with a grain of salt, obviously, but at the same time, like here's why each happened. And I think, you know, that's such an important distinction and it's one that, you know, Babers, if asked about it uh, this week at the ACC football kickoff, might even mention, as I'm sure he, he knows this just as well as anybody else does, that like the season happened in sections. You saw the apex of what could happen against, you know, BC and Virginia Tech. And then you saw the apex of what the offense could potentially do against Pitt. But otherwise, like, there, there were a lot of full games almost where, you know, the team didn't, wasn't really playing to, wasn't really resembling anything, not just, not just good in terms of just, like, quality football and execution, but really wasn't resembling what Babers wanted for it. And you saw that in the frustration on his face and, and the types of play calling he was endorsing in the second half of, you know, maybe one-sided games, just knowing that, that, that there were certain there were certain battles not worth fighting to potentially course correct a little bit uh, of what he wanted this team to do and they weren't and they simply weren't executing on yeah i mean there were always going to be limitations because you um you know he inherited a roster that was built completely differently from uh what he probably intended to be i mean even he's even said it about the quarterback position and we're all pretty thrilled and i think he can put up huge numbers in this offense but um, Babers continues to say he wants a like pure pro style quarterback who sits in the pocket and slings the ball around, and that's not who Dungy is. Like you're never Dungy's never gonna be that guy. Um, he's always gonna take off and run, and he can be a little bit more of that guy. But it's not like his. He's just such an instinctual player. He's always going to look to run when when he can. Um, so even where a position where you're pretty strong, like quarterback, is not like what you ideally want. Um, I, I mean, he probably wants like a Jimmy Garoppolo type, to be honest. Um, which, which makes sense DeVito. considering DeVito seems to be more of that. DeVito doesn't really run nearly as much. Um, but I mean, considering all that, like he, he adjusted pretty well on the offensive side to what we had, obviously like the fact that they were as successful as they were on offense with literally like the running game was so dreadful. Um, it does. I, it's really impressive considering like, you know, he can run, he can build a running game. Like we've seen at his other stops. So, um, again, like I, I overall, like, I think everything in, in Bill's preview like kind of lines up with what we saw and what we've understood. Um, and, I mean, he's fairly optimistic about the direction, and, and that's good because I think Bill's uh, one of the more... Um, I mean, he's everything's very stat-based, so it, it's it's hard to really argue with what he sees. Obviously, things go differently, and like their stuff will be wrong because college football is such a variable sport and such like crazy swings happen from year to year. But if he sees... like interesting and, and potentially good things on the horizon based on this first season when there was plenty that just wasn't ever going to line up with what Babers wants to do eventually. Like, I, I take that as a pretty good sign. Yeah, I'd agree. Like you said, Bill is, is rarely influenced by outside factors um, other than the numbers in front of him, and he, he does a very good job of keeping you know personal bias out. He'll add it as some color here and there, but overall it does kind of stay out of it and i think yeah for, for him to be high on it, it it does confirm what what we've already thought that that this program seems to be trending up obviously you know 2017 tough schedule 2018 doesn't necessarily offer i know like a lot of people saying oh well, what about 2018 like 2018 doesn't necessarily offer a much better alternative um we get you know two of our three toughest opponents um in conference play at home uh, next year, we get Louisville and Florida State again, but we're on the road against Notre Dame, who's not going to be the 4-8 mess they were last year. Uh, we do have to be on the road against, I think we're on the road, against North Carolina? Or we might be at home in that game. Anyway, um, in any case, facing North Carolina, who could be, you know, this year just being a one-year downswing that still ends up with seven wins or so. Like We're, on, we're at North Carolina. Uh, yeah, we are in North Carolina. Oh, no, no, we are. We're not, we're, no, we are hosting them. I read it wrong. Uh, we're hosting Florida State, Louisville, NC State, North Carolina uh, in the ACC, and then we're at BC, Clemson, Wake, Pitt. Right. So, like, that's what I mean. All of our easiest games are on the road again. Like, Notre Dame's a non-conference game. I think I like where we sit 
in the non-conference schedule, but again, still includes Notre Dame. So as much as I, I want to be positive, and I am positive about the direction of the program, I don't I don't necessarily think it's wise to just to sit back and say, look, 2018 is going to be the year when 2018 schedule only presents a proposition slightly less daunting than this one. Yeah, I mean, that's not even like we actually like the out-of-conference schedule. I mean, obviously, the Notre Dame thing is is what it is. We're all it, they, they're basically like part of the, the fabric of the conference. You're not getting out of the Notre Dame game. So it's hard to really complain about it. Obviously, we had a pre-existing relationship with them, too. But it is what it is. Like, at, at Western Michigan, we talked about that. Like, we don't expect them to be the P.J. Fuck Western Michigan, given who the head coach is. Uh, Wagner and UConn, both at home, really, really need to win those games and should. Um, I do like, like the breakdown because you have three extremely winnable games on the road. Like, B.C., uh, Wake Forest, obviously, two of the weaker opponents are playing on an annual basis. And Pitt is just not, like, a super da- – obviously, we struggled there, but it's, it's not a super daunting uh, road, road environment. Um, and then, you know – Louisville, NC State, North Carolina. Obviously, NC State, you hope, is is the most winnable of those. Louisville is always tough, but we have beaten them at home in the, like, fairly recent past. Uh, and North Carolina, I'd say, like, the one saving, not really saving grace at this point because it's speculative, but there's a fair chance that Fedora's not still there. Yeah. Although, I don't know. Maybe I mean, he just team. seems like he's on all the lists. Yeah, I just, it just seems like that he's always on, like, the list of, like, coaches that can be taken the next leap to, like, a Tier 1 or Tier 2 job. And, like, maybe he really likes it at UNC, and they've gotten through their NCAA. Well, they've gotten through... I don't think the football program's in any more trouble with the NCAA. Um, without, who knows? Whoever knows. Um, so maybe he just really likes it there, and it does have potential as a, as a program, but there, he's always coming up on lists like that. So, um, and who knows? You know, there's no guarantee UNC nails another hire, so... Maybe that works out, but otherwise, you know, there aren't going to be any, as long as the ACC is playing the, the, the way that it has the last couple of years, like, there's never going to be a super easy conference schedule. Agreed, and that's why we have beer, which is a nice segue into half. <laughs> Very true. I also looked at the BC offensive draft. It's way worse than our defensive one. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's miserable. Significantly worse. It's they have crazy. one little prong that's beyond the 101 uh, rank limit thing, and that's yards per completion, which basically means, like, occasionally they caught teams off guard because they don't throw the ball efficiently at all. So occasionally they had, like, a like a Georgia Tech, like, oh, my God, the option team is throwing the ball, except it's like, oh, my God, the really bad offense is throwing the ball. <laughs> OBC. Um, all right. So, Dan, what have you been drinking for the past week? Uh, not a ton, but I did have some new things, as I promised last week, because I did basically contribute to nothing. I had uh, Lemon Drop Sun from Southern Tier, which I surprisingly, I don't know if it's new, or if I just had somehow never had it before, uh, back, you know, in the Syracuse days where Southern Tier was a big part of my drinking experience. Um, it was like kind of like a, a soury wheat, uh, very refreshing, kind of reminds me of their Hop Sun, but it had like a really distinct lemony, uh, soury, I guess it's, it's wheat beer blue with lemon, so that makes sense. Um, pretty refreshing. Like, it doesn't quite get to like the Rattler or like the uh, Shandy level, which is good because it's, it's very much a beer. Um but it has a very distinct lemon flavor, which was nice. Uh, so recommend that one, as I do most Southern Tier things, because they're a very good brewery. Um, 420 Pale Ale, Extra Pale Ale from Sweetwater, which you don't always see up here, although they're starting to creep up here a little more. I had one of those, one of the, one of my favorites out of Atlanta. And it's a really, once you're down south, like it's everywhere, and it's a, it's a really good, like, you can usually find it at any bar uh, standby. And then tonight I was at Dino. I didn't have an ape hanger, as I usually do. I did have an Other Half's Forever Ever IPA, uh, which was solid. Like they have better stuff, but it was it was uh, a pretty nice. You know, would definitely drink a bunch of these uh, if that was the option given to me. Um, pretty uh, drinkable IPA. So, those are the uh, more exciting things I've had the last week. Fair enough. Uh, I was down in Florida, so everything I had was from Florida. Had a uh, had a funky Buddha hop gun. Also had funky Buddha's pineapple beach. Uh, was there? Uh, the kind of Blondale. It wasn't too pineapple but it was a nice, refreshing uh, drink to have in very uh, hot, hot heat. I had a uh, Due South uh, Citrified Pale Ale. Uh, Due South's another Florida brewery. Very, very good. Um, and another good, uh, again, I really wasn't expecting to, to drink much in terms of like great stuff. Actually, didn't have any Cigar City while I was down there because they didn't really have anything um, at the hotel we were at. Um, 
Had a, a Copper Point Das Pilsner. It was a German Pilsner that was really enjoyable. Had a Tampa Bay Brewing Company uh, Reef Donkey Pale Ale. The Florida Beer Company's uh, Florida Lager was enjoyable enough. A little bit lighter amber lager. Um, went over to uh, Funky Buddha's uh, Lounge in uh, Boca Raton. Had a couple different things there. Had a, a Hop Stand IPA. And their uh, Starfruit Berliner Weiss. That was pretty enjoyable and refreshing. And then also had... There's Saison de Rulo, that was okay. That was really it. Just kind of just kind of browsed through the uh, the hotel beer list, and that was really it. But enjoyable. Said so Florida's not going to have like a ton of heavier stuff, at least right now, um, because of the heat down there. So it was nice to to keep things on the lighter end. I don't think anything I drank was over like six percent. It was a nice change. As much as I like a, a good, like, hot bomb or whatever, that's, like, the last thing I want to drink if it's, like, 90s and 90% humidity. I want something that's just super, super refreshing. Leave it out here. Like, there's not, like, a ton of, like... Cause, I mean, it doesn't get, like, humid, but there's still not, like, a ton of things that are, like, super refreshing uh, from local uh, breweries. There's some, and uh, I try to seek those out when I can. But, yeah, it was nice to just have kind of, like, a full cap list of, uh, of, of lighter fare. That uh, that was still local. Yeah, it's, it's I haven't been to Florida in a while. It seems like a like sneaky, pretty good beer scene, especially because like you have Cedar City and a couple other big ones popping up. Yeah, I was I hadn't been in fifteen years, and I was wasn't drinking the last time I was there, but it was uh, it was still an enjoyable experience. And now we move on to the second half of our uh, podcast today, the part that everyone was looking forward to. I'm sure we're previewing the Big Twelve, Dan. Yes, we are. the uh, Pretty definitively the weakest of the power conferences last year. A title that was usually reserved for the ACC up until people were like, oh, hey, the ACC is actually really good. Thanks, Clemson, for uh, letting everyone know about that. And I guess Florida State less recently. Florida State first, technically. Yes. And then Clemson followed along after and decided, oh, yeah, maybe we should be good, too. Yeah, I mean, and considering we play both of them every year, uh, we might want to think about that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like us to take that under advisement as well. Um, so, Big 12, obviously not really on the same level as the other power conferences. Part of that is because they only have 10 teams. Another part of it is because they have largely terrible markets outside of Austin and Oklahoma. They don't really have great recruiting outside of Texas and Oklahoma either. Um Still, there are some quality programs here. Uh, we're not necessarily going to talk about all of them, but uh, might as well talk about a few of them. Uh, the kind of biggest thing, and I know we, we mentioned this a little bit on a recent podcast, um, Bob Stoops leaves Oklahoma pretty much out of nowhere. Um, Dan, do you think they take a step back as a program, or do you think that, that they should be able to kind of maintain the ship at least this year under Lincoln Riley and then see what happens next? Um, I think it's always a valid concern when you lose a guy like like Stoops, who was, you know, for all of the big game Bob like jeers over the last couple years. Like, it's hard to to really knock his coaching ability. Like, they were so consistently good for um, pretty much his entire tenure. Um, so obviously, I don't expect Lincoln Riley to step in and like take them to a national title right away. Um, but I will say this is probably the best, like, one of the better rosters you could ask. And I think that's probably part of the reason Stoops did it when he did. Like. This team is is built really well. It's very senior laden. They have a, a quarterback who is obviously one of the best in the country and, and super, uh, you know, a clear leader on the team. Um, they're they're pretty stacked across the board. They've been, you know, in these big like huge games with a lot of these pieces for for years now. So I'd say this is about as good a situation as you can ask if you're Lincoln Riley. And I think I forget what, what podcast they talked about it, but like I think it, it also helps that this Oklahoma team is, like, they're not quite a national title favorite. They're kind of bubbling under in that second tier of teams that could win it. So that kind of takes some of, like, the... Like, if this was was Alabama, like, Nick Saban and just had a weird change of, like, stepped away and, and I don't even know who would get that job. That there'd be, like, a war for the throne for that one. Um, but, like, say there was a Lincoln Riley there uh, who inherited that job. Like, the pressure would be huge. Um, 
here, like, obviously, I think there are going to be a lot of Oklahoma fans who think they should be contending for a title right away this year, and with the roster, like, they're probably not too far off, but I expectations are so crazy this season that if he only goes 10-2, and two, people are going to be, like, throwing fits. I think uh, he's in a pretty good spot where, like, they, they're they expected to win the Big 12, which they do all the time, so that shouldn't be too crazy, and uh, if they're in the, they should be in the playoff discussion. Now, if they have, like, if they go 8-4, then I think he's kind of uh, stepped into an iffy situation, although I think that'd be pretty hard to, ha- uh, to to do with the team that he has, unless, like, Mayfield got hurt or something. Oh, yeah, and, and then, to be honest, you look at all the seasons that the, the you know, small handful that Oklahoma stepped back in recent years, it's been because of injuries. Um, you know, they've had, I think, a couple, without having them in front of me, I think they've had, like, a couple seasons where they've gone, you know, 7-5 and five or 8-4, and four, and all of them have been have been as a result of injuries almost entirely to the quarterback position. So, yeah, I mean, this team needs Mayfield to stay healthy. That's not a guarantee given the fact that Mayfield is a little bit of a risk taker. Not on par with Junji necessarily, but someone who will take a hit here and there. Um, he's obviously a great player, and like you said, Oklahoma's surrounded him with a lot of tools and a lot of um, really you know, kind of top-flight recruits. They've elevated their recruiting in recent years. To be more at a top, you know, ten to fifteen level. This team, this team is well situated to win a very winnable conference. Um, much more so, I think, than than you can say that you know. Even Florida State a couple of years ago, like I think this Oklahoma team is far and away the best team in the league. But that said, I, I that doesn't mean that another team couldn't win uh, this conference, and I wouldn't be surprised if Oklahoma State. Ooh, that's. Up. I'm very, very tempted, and obviously we have a little while before we have to like commit to anything. I'm super tempted to take Oklahoma State to win this league. I, in my, and you know, I, I, I started doing this as soon as all the schedules are um, confirmed. I do my initial take on everybody, and just kind of tweak throughout the rest of the offseason. I have Oklahoma State winning the regular season title, and then Oklahoma beating... Oklahoma State and knocking them out of the playoff in Bedlam Part Two in the Big Twelve Championship. We do have our first Big Twelve Championship game this year, right? Like that's yeah, that's the thing. The, the dumbest thing. It's so dumb, and it's like it's dumb, but also the regular the regular way they do it is dumb. Like the whole every 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 possibility is dumb, which is a great position to be in. Um, yeah, I mean that wouldn't surprise me. I would take in a head to head matchup. Like I trust Oklahoma way more on paper. Oklahoma State's offense is silly. Well, it's ridiculously like, good. Mason Rudolph is actually getting better for once. It's not bad enough for me to totally write them off. Like it was, it was, it, it improved last year a lot from where it was the year, uh, the year before, if I remember correctly. And like we talk about this with Syracuse, like they don't need to be great when you have an offense like this. They just need to be like good enough. And there's no reason why this defense can't be like a top sixty unit. And the offense is probably going to be a top ten unit no matter what you do. And it might be better than that. It might be this could be the best offense in the country. I think on paper, I, I'd probably say it's right there. Um, five in, in my book for sure. It's I mean, they're just so well rounded. Like the biggest question marks the uh, the offensive line, and like they're all pretty veteran there. I think they have like three or four returning starters, which is about as much you, as you can ask for for most teams every every year. They have a super veteran quarterback who fits the system perfectly. They have just the receivers are silly. Uh, they have a really good running back coming off of an impressive freshman year. Like. The offensive skill position talent, it's, it's crazy, and it's just a real uh, testament to what Mike Gundy does there because he never recruits at a huge level. I, I think their average, I, I have their, their Bill C.A. preview open. I know he has the average. Right now? Even that, like, I mean, 30 is, like, high for them. I think they're they're usually in, like, 40 to 45 more, range. Closer, closer to the 40 to 45 range. Well, they're another um, system. I mean, they're in a system team, and I mean that in a good way at this point, too, as a fan of the system team, like, that... If you if you recruited recruited a thirty to forty range, but you're recruiting the right guys for your system, I mean that's how Texas Tech got to be so good at the peak of the Leach era. It wasn't because they were out recruiting Texas; it's because they were recruiting the best possible players for that system, and they might not have fit normal metrics, but they did fit their metrics, and that's what you're seeing right now at Oklahoma State. I mean, Mike Gundy's turned himself into a little bit of a folk hero down there. Like, I don't think he's ever leaving that place, and that's fine. Like he has carved out a niche where. If Gundy wins nine or ten games every season, there, I'd find it hard to believe there's ever a time in which Cowboys fans get tired of him unless he spends like three years in the playoff, fails to win it, and then 
drops back down to like nine and three in second or third place in the conference. Yeah, I found it. He so I, I don't know which service uh, Bill uses. I think it's Rivals, but I, I could be he wrong. Uses twenty four seven because it has the composite. Does he use them now? Yeah, I think he used Rivals for a while. Now he's the, the composite. But he they're they're an average of fortieth in the last two years and thirty sits the last five. So like they're about where like Syracuse is to be on their good years. But they're winning they're a lot of games level. every year. Yeah, they're at a Louisville level. Yeah, winning actually, probably a little less, honestly. True. Right. Um, and, like, just, like, you're totally right. The system is is just, he calibrates it so well. He knows it's after the guys he wants to go after. He's targeting, you know, under, under-recruited under guys in Texas, uh, where obviously there's just a million three stars who could explode down there. Um, and just picking his spots, getting good quarterbacks, which is important. And, and at this point, quarterbacks know they can go and succeed there. I was really inter- I thought that Oregon was going to make a, a stronger run after Dundee, and I know Oklahoma State's alma mater, but like it's really fun. The the relationship between him and T. Boone Pickens is so funny. They don't seem to like each other at all, but they both want what's best for the program. Um, so they're kind of just staying together for the kids, basically. Um, and he's like kind of underpaid, and like writes about that, and but like then gets like renewed for just enough. So it wouldn't like it wouldn't shock me if anything happens with him. I could totally see him retiring there and being. You know, he'll probably end up being, like, a college ball Hall of Famer uh, and, like, one of the guys, like, who maybe never even wins a championship, but is, like, just a revered guy there, kind of like uh, uh, McPherson is for us. And then uh, I could also see him jumping into, like, a giant program in a couple of years because, like, the Oklahoma State's just, like, the limitations there just get to him. But I- I'd probably lean towards the former just because he is, he is an alum and he has been there for a while now, so uh, I'm sure he's had his opportunities. Um, but this team, like, is just, should be a lot of fun, because, like, while I do think the defense will be decent, I don't think they're going to be great, so you're going to see a lot of, like, 60 to 40 games. That's fine to me. Uh, I'm all for it. They're going to be entertaining as hell. I think, Dan, looking at the schedule for them, I'm I'm circling two potential losses, potential, and and that's not even, those aren't even guarantees. Like, for them... The non-conference is, is imminently winnable, even with a trip to Pittsburgh. I think you're looking at the only two possible losses are at Texas, and that's only because it's on the road, and versus Oklahoma on November 4th. Yeah, and there are a couple other ones. Like, TCU, I don't know what to make of this year. I wouldn't be shocked if they have, like, one of their weird, like, Horn Frogs back resurgent years. Oh, I've got them um, about 9-3. Yeah, so, like, even them at home could be tricky. Um, at Pitt, I'm not too worried about Pitt this year. Um, I think Texas Tech can t- get weird for teams. Yeah. But, like, at Texas Tech can be weird for teams a lot of the time. At uh, Texas, like, Texas more. obviously is a... For, yeah, but they're, like, the trendy pick not, every year now. I'm so. high on Cliff this year. I think Cliff could get fired. Oh, I, I was I was moving on to Texas. I, I just think, like, going to Lubbock can get, like, weird things that happen there sometimes. Okay. But... Oklahoma State, like, they'll win a shootout, so it's I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Texas Tech, like, literally give up a touchdown every possession in that game. Um, at Texas is tough. Uh, Texas is super talented. I think we touched on it last week. Like, who knows what they'll be in year one under uh, under um, Tom Herman. But uh, just going there, um, I'm sure the, the fan base will be pretty energized, uh, even in mid-October, even if they're not, like, off the page with wins at that point. Um there's a lot of talent in the Texas team, and they've showed it. They've beaten Oklahoma recently in games that they have no business winning. Um, and then, obviously, Oklahoma at West Virginia is weird. Like, there are a lot of, like, troublesome games here, but, like, but but they're easily one of the most talented teams. Um, they should go, like, 10-2. Uh, if, if they fall, if they if they only win, like, eight games, that's a pretty big disappointment, I think. Well, I think, too, it depends on how high you are on, like, the middle class of the Big 12. And I think that's, you know, kind of our next narrative here. Because, I mean, Texas, I, I don't think, is part of that middle class. I think they're in the upper middle class slash like maybe the lower part of the upper class depending on how you want to classify them i think yeah this conference is going to rise and fall and that goes for oklahoma and oklahoma state too on on what this middle class does you know if k-state texas tcu um and west virginia all like really kind of shit the bed in non-conference play i mean texas is going to pick up a loss against usc i think that's pretty obvious like if those teams all kind of settle in around seven and five or eight and four, and none of them challenge for maybe a nine and three record, like that's a disaster for this conference because that even puts that puts a, Oklahoma State like if you 
like Oklahoma faces Ohio State still, don't they? Yeah, they go to Ohio State after getting yeah. smacked by them at home last year. Right, that's what I mean. Like Oklahoma at least has that game to lean back on. Like if Oklahoma goes eleven and one or even ten and two with that game on the schedule, and if, if they won that game, even better. Like they're a team that could still hang around the, the playoff conversation. Like Oklahoma State stands to lose a hell of a lot if, if this conference can't get itself together in the middle. Because let's say again, if Pitt only goes like seven and five in the ACC, if Tulsa doesn't contend for the West Conference, the Western Division title in the you know American Athletic, if South Alabama goes like three and nine, and then you look at the potential for for faltering with TCU, with Texas maybe, with West Virginia definitely, um, Iowa State could fall back down to a four and eight level. K-State might not be as good as people think just because of, you know, what Bill Snyder's had to deal with over the offseason. Kansas is going to suck. Like, that's a lot of bad games that just a lot of other playoff contenders aren't going to have on their resumes. Yeah, and that could be a growing problem for this league just because of, I mean, we've seen it with, um, obviously, the first year of the playoff, T, uh, Baylor and TCU both getting left out. Obviously, last year wasn't as big a, a controversy with Oklahoma getting left out. Um, they weren't really left out. They just didn't earn it. But, like that could be a continuing issue, is if you know you have this this deep middle class, but you're but Texas doesn't really rise up to the Oklahoma level or Oklahoma State. Like obviously this year, I think they're they're going to probably contend uh, for you know the top of the conference. But if all you have is Oklahoma there, um, it's going to be a problem. You, for, you can't even be too. You have to, I think you have to be three deep, and that's something like the ACC's been able to do lately. Like you can't be too deep and expect that like those two teams are going to be able to carry you to a playoff bid. Yeah, you need ideally you need Texas Oklahoma as national powers every year. But if one of those two teams falters, you want a deeper bench of like an Oklahoma State could jump up, a TCU could jump up like they did a couple of years ago, a Baylor could jump up, and Not like right now, you know, well, <laughs> probably we'll see. Um, but right now, it doesn't like I think Oklahoma State is a fair shot this year. But Texas, I'm not gonna buy in year one under Herman as as sneaky uh, Big Twelve title contenders. I think they'll be pretty good because I, I think Herman can really coach and, and they have a lot of talent, but I don't I don't expect them to really push Oklahoma for the top of the league. Um, I'm not buying in Kansas State as like a contender. TCU intrigues me, but I need to see them first. I always love the um, Frats. I always love the Frats too. And like a couple years ago, I remember like people were like bubbling, like when they were coming off that 4-8 and eight year uh, before they almost made the playoff, like there was a lot of heat about how good they were on defense and how the issues they had on offense like could easily make a big jump forward and it all worked out um this year i'm i i just feel like i'm not super comfortable with them yet and then baylor is interesting because of all the changes there um i know they're defensively like pretty stacked and that's a weird thing to say like obviously they've had good defenses under briles but uh it's funny to think like their offense is a big question mark because they're making such a big transition um and because they just lost so many guys from all the fallout of everything um but I do like Rule. I think he's a really good coach that is pretty adjustable, and that's going to be huge for them. Um, but I'm not convinced any of these teams are going to pop out of nowhere like TCU did in 2014. Like, TCU, some team people thought was going to be maybe, like, a, a resurgent team, but they were, I mean, you could argue they should have made the playoffs that year. Um, and this year, I, I think you have one, maybe two teams that are seen as, like, legitimate playoff contenders, but neither of them was, like, being penciled into many top fours, they're both, like, probably in the 8 to 10 range. And that's not a great place to be. No, it's not. And part of that is because of this stupid conference championship game that they have this year. Like like I said, there's a very real, you know, timeline in which one of them wins regular season Bedlam and the other one wins the Redux in the championship game and knocks the other one out of the playoff. And, like, that would be fun for the fan base that knocks the other team out of the playoff, but it doesn't really do anything for the conference in the long or short term uh, to help them out. And, like, this gets a little bit now to, like, I, I think the, the consensus for you and me, the, the third-place team in this conference, Texas, like, there's a lot to like here, and I know others have said, like, it's really easy to talk yourself into Texas. Like, the USC game, they're going to lose. But then, like, you look at that stretch from October 14th, hosting Oklahoma. Then they have the next week, they're hosting Oklahoma State. They're at Baylor. They're at TCU. Like, that four-game stretch is going to define this season because if they get through that at 3-1, and one, Texas is a contender to win this conference depending on who they beat. 
I think you're looking past the arch rival Kansas on November 11th. <laughs> Big revenge spot. I think Texas will pull it out, but I can't be sure. I think Texas is going to win that game going away. Because I, like Her- <laughs> I, I feel like Herman is going to... I feel like Herman's gal- going to galvanize everybody who like didn't like Charlie Strong on the roster. Oh, Her- which, which won't be many, but there will be some. Herman's going to break out all of like the cliche uh, like motivational tactics, but they all end up working with college football players. Um, versus Charlie Strong's uh, made-up motivational tactics that we... I always have to remember one of every every so often because they're still funny, even though I do like Charlie Strong. Cardboard um, of quarterbacks saying things, of, uh, they, never saying things they didn't say. <laughs> there were no fact checkers in the Louisville team that year. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, this Texas schedule, like, it lays out really well for them because you look at their road games. Like, the toughest road game is at TCU in, in conference. Obviously, SC is a, is a much tougher game than that. But, like, all their other tough opponents are at home. There's definitely things to like here. It's just a question of, again, like if they can go 3-1 and one in that Oklahoma to TCU stretch and all of that's without a bye, like they, you could talk me into Texas being a Big 12 title contender. But, again, have to go 3-1 and one in that stretch. Yeah, I, I almost – I think if Texas wins the Big 12, like you're probably going to see a two or three loss Big 12 champion, and that's not great for them either. It's great for Texas but it's not great for the rest of the league again. Too, too true. Um, Dan, as we wrap up here, um, do you think it's Oklahoma or Oklahoma State winning this league? My head says Oklahoma. My heart says Oklahoma State. Um, I'm just I'm going to go with Oklahoma. I just feel like that's a smart play. Uh, they, I trust them. I like Riley. I think he's going to be a really good coach. Um, I like Mayfield. Uh just that roster, just I'm, I feel better about them. Even though like they're not like super on defense, but they're improving from where they were a year before. Uh, a year before, and like they just have a lot of talent, and I trust them just just enough more. Um, it just feels like the safe play. But Oklahoma State, I do think maybe has more upside just because of how lethal that offense to be, and I think it will be a little more well rounded than Oklahoma, which is going to be I think uh, because they lost the two big running backs could just end up being the Baker Mayfield show at times, which. It's fun, and that's a decent show to be watching. But Oklahoma State can beat you with like literally every still position player they have. Um, so I'm going OU, but like by the time the season rolls around, I might be on the Oklahoma State train. All right. Yeah, I'm. I'm sticking by what I said earlier. OK State wins Bedlam, takes the conference in the regular season. OU beats them at Jerry World to throw everything into chaos. And the other four, four conferences all get teams the. Yep, and once again, the other four conferences get to the playoffs. I think the standings at the top of this conference look like Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, Texas TCU, and give me... Give me West Virginia as number five. I'm going to go... I'll do slightly different. I'm doing Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. I'm going to go TCU, Texas, and I'll have Baylor leaping into number five with a good first year for Matt Rule. I think I put Baylor at six, tied with K-State. I just, I don't buy into K-State this year. I know I'm going to regret that. I never do, and then they're always good-ish. <laughs> like they're, they're always, like, competitive and annoying um, because Bill Snyder's a, a wizard, as is well-documented. As, as, as is his freedom. His, his autobiography should be well-documented wizard. <laughs> All right. I think we've covered the Big 12. Maybe not to everyone's liking. That's fine. I don't think anyone likes the Big 12, even the people in the Big 12. That, that's that's a certifiable fact. Yeah, I no one wants to be in that top. The only you know, you know who loves the Big 12? Iowa, Iowa State, State loves State that fans. league. <laughs> Iowa State is is all about the Mid 12 and hopes it never. I always like they're like the I don't even know how to who to compare them to. They're like fish fans, but for the Big 12. <laughs> like no one else really gets it, but like Iowa State's a way in, and they're going to see him at the Darden like eight times a year. I think that it's a very apt comparison. Way to way to go, Iowa State fish! Your new your new hippie overlords. Um, anyway, uh, Dan, thanks for joining. It's much uh, much appreciated as always. Yes, next week I should have a, an actual microphone, so we'll see how that goes. It might not work at all because I'm bad with uh, technology sometimes. But you never know. Maybe we may sound better next week. We'll let's we'll find out. Well, you had to tune in, and that's the big draw.
uh, for next week's episode. Oh, the let's find out thing almost launched me into a BoJack joke, but I'll leave it. Uh, <laughs> anyway. September. Coming back. Can John and Dan record a podcast? I don't know. Let's... Uh, next week is the Big Ten, I believe, because I like slighting Jim Delaney, even if he will never know about this podcast. And it's well documented that my favorite league outside of the ACC is the Pac-12, so I will give them an inflated sense of self. John makes the rules, folks. I do. Um, anyway, that was Dan. I'm John. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk. And go Bayheim's Army. Go Bayheim's Army. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing a car that's got style and substance to spare. The all-new RAV4 Limited. Featuring a sophisticated, muscular new exterior. And available options like a premium JBL audio system and panoramic roof. The all-new RAV4 Limited. Toyota. Let's go places. JBL and Clarifier registered trademarks of Harmon International Industries Incorporated.